This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Sunday, February 20, 2022. Welcome to the second episode in a new series from Midas Touch and 5-Minute News called The Weekend Show. Uh, Thank you for your incredible response and comments and reviews for our first episode last weekend. Your support has blown my tiny mind. Uh, And don't forget to subscribe to the daily 5-Minute News audio podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Joining me today is Dr. Caroline Orbueno, a behavioural scientist and postdoctoral research associate at the University of Maryland who studies cognitive security with a focus on misinformation and online influence. And also foreign correspondent Sarah Firth, who's been in Ukraine since the 8th of January and has been on the front lines near the occupied territories in the east. She joins us today from Donbass, which is also currently, uh, well, has the potential to come under attack. Uh, Caroline, Sarah, thank you for joining us on The Weekend Show. Thank you for having me. So three topics that we looked at through the week on 5-Minute News. Back on the um, 17th of February, we that was Thursday, we looked at the virus rules diminishing as the CDC records improved infection rates. Uh, story for the United States there. On uh, Friday the 18th, we looked at Donald Trump and his two eldest children who now must testify in a New York case. Uh, they're going to give deposition within 21 days, the judge has ruled. So we'll look at that in just a moment. But I first want to start with Ukraine. Sarah, you're in Ukraine. The uh, story today is that the separatist shelling in Ukraine has renewed fears of an invasion. And uh, Joe Biden has warned that Russia could invade within days. And uh, violence has now spiked this long-running standoff that uh, some worry could provide a, a wider conflict. So... You're in Donbass, but you were um, you were in Kiev before. So tell us where you're at and how things are happening for you right now. So I spent the last couple of months um, on various front lines around the occupied territories of Donetsk and Luhansk. And I've also visited the port city of Mariupol, which is a pretty key area uh, for Ukraine as well. Um, I've embedded with the military overnight, so I spent a good amount of time with the um, with the soldiers. And uh, now we are about 30 kilometers from the uh, front lines with Donetsk, 
the occupied territory. Uh, and uh, it's a pretty tense moment tonight that you've um, caught me at because obviously for the country right now, there's a real sense of um, just how serious this is potentially about to get. We're seeing some of those key indicators that the likes of the US president and the US Secretary of State have laid out in very clear terms that they've assessed that uh, Russia might take. And, and now we're seeing some of that over the last few days actually playing out on the ground here in the East. Sarah, I think people don't really realise the scale of Ukraine. It's the largest country in Europe outside of uh, Russia and with 41 million people uh, there. And the the consequences of an invasion of 170,000 Russian troops who are currently amassed at the border would be significant for regular Ukra- Ukrainians. But uniquely, they have the support of the West and NATO, of course, would effectively be the enemy to Russia with the support of China. So how do Ukrainians feel about having this support from the likes of Joe Biden? I mean, that support's been absolutely critical. And I think the messaging coming from the US has really bolstered the forces on the front line. And of course, that uh, those words have been backed up by action. You've seen US military aid um, coming in, in in significant quantities, and that is absolutely desperately needed. Um, I mean, I think there's perhaps a sense that some of this has come a little bit too late. Um, you speak to the soldiers on the front line, and they say, you know, we feel like the world has just woken up to this conflict that's been going on for eight years now. And now you've seen this Russian military buildup on the borders, and this threat has gotten to this sort of the brink, basically, the brink of a war that we didn't expect to see in in this time, in this day and age. Um, and the last eight years, these soldiers, you know, we've, we've spent so much time with them. I've embedded with the Ukrainian military. These, these front lines are trench warfare. They've been fighting in trenches for the last eight years. Um, so that's the sort of level of experience. It's a very capable, very organized military. It's not the military of 2014, but there are these huge vulnerabilities when it comes to their defense capabilities, and in particular when it comes to aviation uh, and naval defense. And so were we actually to see the kind of escalation and uh, a full-scale invasion of the type, the worst-case scenario type that we've heard the U.S. president and the U.S. Secretary of State talking about just over the last few days, um, Ukraine remains extremely vulnerable. And I think there is a big question mark over over what happens then. You know, one soldier I spoke to said, Ukraine is the forepost of Europe. So what happens here in Ukraine now isn't just going to affect Ukrainians. Um, There is a real sense amongst a lot of people, not just the soldiers that you speak to, that this is Russia conducting diplomacy with a gun to Ukraine's head, to Europe's head, to NATO's head, and, and that potentially they're going to be able to continue to carry out this kind of aggression and this threatening behavior for quite an extended period if something significant doesn't change. Sarah, let's just talk for a second about Vladimir Putin, because he's kind of on the back foot here, isn't he? If he is forced to go to war, this will cost him a fortune. And, and many people say that Russia is you know, practically bankrupted anyway. You know, he, his, his money is, is not in the Kremlin. It's spread all around the world in, in oligarchs' bank accounts. So he, he probably isn't... He, he's, he's clearly using this uh, troop buildup 
as a, an opportunity to push leverage. He really doesn't want Ukraine to join NATO. That's fundamentally what this is all about, isn't it? It is, yes. And I mean, I think in, in terms of, you know, again, sort of assessing the situation as it's progressed over the last couple of months, perhaps that aim has potentially been achieved. I don't think, you know, speaking to a lot of Western analysts, that the question of NATO membership at any time in the near future uh, now is is pushed even further back, given the current situation. Um, but that being said, I mean, I think it is really important to note that the, you know, all the Ukrainians that we've spoken to have dealt with this ongoing conflict for eight years now. And, and it's never been this serious. We've never seen troops built up, the Russian troop build up of this type. Uh, and again, you know, it's up until now, it's been trench warfare. But if worst case predictions come true, this is a, a conflict on a totally different scale. And, and, and Ukrainians remain extremely vulnerable. And there's not panic here. Um, but there is a sort of psychological element to this as well, where, you know, you, you ask people about dates of, you know, when a potential invasion could start and, and they'll tell you it doesn't really matter if it's tomorrow or the day after or next week or next year. The, the point is that right now Russia can do this. And in 2014, they did invade. They've occupied territory in Ukraine, in Donetsk and Luhansk for the last eight years. They annexed Crimea. And so those warnings coming from the US about the potential targeting from the air, the extension of those occupied territories, the targeting perhaps of the port city of Mariupol, there is a real concern that an attack of that type might fall under the threshold of the type of international sanctions that would be needed to deter Russia from doing this. So I think there is a sense no one knows what is going on inside Putin's head right now. And you ask people here, you know, do you think the soldiers, do you think he's going to do this? And they will tell you all we know is that Russia has been doing this for the last eight years. There is verified information about Russian support to those separatist areas. And we've seen now very clear steps that have been taken despite lines and talks of de-escalation. Um, that is not what's happening on the ground right now. What's happening on the ground right now is that over the last few days, we've seen an uptick in attacks. And that is deeply, deeply concerning for the Ukrainians here in the country as to what that means and what the next few days might hold. OK, Sarah, thank you. I'll let you get back because I know that uh, it's late there and uh, you need to be safe. But I appreciate you joining us on the Thank you so show. much for your patience, Anthony. Take care. Caroline, let me ask you, how different do you think, we'll just stay with Ukraine just for a couple of minutes, how do you think this might be have played out slightly differently if Donald Trump was still the president of the United States? Because, you know, famously, he sided with Putin. He asked Vladimir Zelensky to investigate Hunter Biden. I mean, his whole attitude to this region was from a very different standpoint. He doesn't really know world politics, does he? It was all about how things affect him. So how might have it been different for us here in the US and for the people of Ukraine if, if uh, President Trump was still the man in charge? Um, you know, on the one hand, uh, I think we all saw that um, much of the world, including Ukraine and Russia, um, did not really see Trump as um, as 
having uh, Ukraine's back and, and really you know, didn't, uh, if a situation like this had happened, I think there would have been a lot of questions uh, among Ukrainians whether the U.S. really would have had their back and whether we would have, um, you know, been the allies that, that we have promised to be. And I, I think also, on the other hand, Russia would have would have known that the support from the U.S. may not be as as solid, and certainly that could could embolden um, Putin to uh, invade or be more um, aggressive than he may be in other circumstances. You know, in uh, there's another side though to the story, which is that because of all of that, I think Americans were paying more attention to Ukraine and Russia because we knew that um, we didn't necessarily have a president who would who would have a solid policy. And so I, I, a lot of us felt like, you know, we needed to pay closer attention because if the president wasn't going to step up, somebody did. And um, I think now what we're seeing is there's First of all, there's just so much going on right now. You know, we're still in a pandemic. Um, there's a lot going on politically. There's a lot going on globally. And I think that can also have the effect of emboldening someone like Putin if they feel like there is an opportunity when people are distracted, when people are not focused in on um, on that conflict that, you know, that can be used as um you know, as a vulnerability uh, and, and may, in fact, be one of the reasons that this this time was chosen uh, to, uh, you know, potentially invade Ukraine again. Because Trump famously took the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord, the Iran nuclear deal, and was very keen to remove the U.S. from NATO as well. And of course, this is a potential war between Russia and NATO, not Russia and the U.S. So it could have got to the point, I presume, that the U.S. wouldn't have even been part of the Allied forces. Yeah, I mean, that was obviously one of the um, kind of the most startling things uh, about Trump's presidency in terms of, of foreign policy was his um you know, his, his criticism of NATO, his lack of support for U.S. participation in NATO. Um, and, you know, I think there is still there are still lingering effects of that among um, some you know, Republicans in, in the U.S. I think we still see that the support for NATO, the support for U.S. Um, involvement in NATO is not as strong as it once was among Republicans. And I think, um, you know, if, if Donald Trump were still president, I think there would be questions about sort of how involved um, the U.S. would would be and whether uh, he would kind of take Putin's point of view that, you know, well, Ukraine is in Russia's backyard and, you know, what's America doing over here? And, I, you know, I think um, we would probably hear some of that um, echoed echoed by Trump if he were still in office. Do you think it's fair to say that the reason that he wanted to withdraw troops from all active service around the world, obviously we know about Afghanistan, but he was very keen to remove peacekeeping troops from anywhere and everywhere, including, you know, in Germany, is because really he didn't know anything about foreign policy. He didn't really understand what diplomacy was about. And actually it would be easier for him 
if he didn't have any troops seeing active service because it meant that he could focus on his America first policy. And then you had that contradiction of him boasting that America had the biggest, most powerful military in the world. And yet he wanted to bring them all home. You know, I think it's probably a combination of things. I think, you know, I, I don't think he really understood or understands policy in in general. I think he was being advised by people, you know, who had very strong uh, worldviews and very strong ideologies, including some who had um, sort of isolationist, nationalist uh, viewpoints. And I think that that had a lot to do with um you know, his wanting to to pull the U.S. out of um, all of our involvement, whether it was in, in conflict or in peace. And, um, you know, I think look at people like Steve Bannon, who really advocate for those more isolationist, protectionist policies, nationalist policies. And, you know, I think a, a good part of the Republican base found that appealing. And I think, you know, the our involvement in in um, conflicts like in Afghanistan, how long that lasted, I think it makes it appealing to think about, you know, just kind of withdrawing from all of all of those you know potential situations. And I think there are people who believe, I think incorrectly, that um, the situation in in Ukraine is a parallel or, you know, would be a a new Afghanistan. Uh, I don't think that is at all a a good comparison. They're very different situations. We're not nation building, for one thing, in Ukraine. Um, But, you know, I think Trump had advisors who were telling him certain things, who, you know, were advocating their uh, worldviews, and I think he didn't necessarily, um, you know, have a have a counterpoint to that, and I don't think he necessarily, um, you know, understood that situation enough to have a counterpoint of his own. I I I don't like this to be the Donald Trump show, but I also recognize that to ignore him and to think that because he's not in office, he's gone away is foolish when you're talking about somebody who so drastically changed the face of America. And not just for Americans with the division here, but also the viewpoint of America from around the world, because the rest of the world relied on America's democracy and diplomacy in order to build their own democracies and diplomacy. And so with it being so fractious here and him being so critical of other nations without really understanding them, how much damage do you think that did to America on the world stage? Um, I I think pretty significant. Um, You know, if you read um, world news, you know, from from other countries and um, certainly talk to people in, in Europe and much of the rest of the world, uh, there is kind of a feeling that we're still not the U.S. they, they remember and thought we were. Um, I think there's, you know, a, a sense of um, kind of uncertainty, you know, if, if um, in situations, you know, like, like Ukraine and certainly other uh, other. Uh, foreign policy related situations, I think there's just a lot of questions about sort of, you know, well, you're not the country we thought you were. So, so what decisions are you going to make now? You know, in the past, we kind of uh, 
you know, we thought you were a predictable country. We thought we understood the decision making and could kind of count on you to make, you know, certain decisions in certain situations. And I think there's a lot of questions now um, about whether, you know, we can be counted on and, and are we the allies that people thought we were? And, um, you know, when we enter into a treaty or a pact with other countries, you know, can we be counted on? Because there's been a long standing um, agreement that, you know, certain treaties and certain pacts would would endure regardless of the presidency and that, you know, a new president could come in and may have different um, different views and, and certainly different foreign policies. But that, you know, if we agreed to something that we would hold up our end of the agreement. And I think, you know, there is some uncertainty among, um, you know, around the world about whether that is still the case. And, you know, I don't think that's irreparable damage. I think we can, you know, restore confidence again, but I, I think it's going to take, um, you know, I think we're basically going to have to prove ourselves that, um, you know, that we are, are um, that we are the country that um, some of our allies believed we were and would like us to be. And um, I, I think, you know, in, in whether it's Ukraine or, um, you know, the, the uh, Paris Climate Agreement, I, you know, I think we're just going to have to show that when we say we will do something, we will we will do it. And I, over time, I, I hope that, um, you know, we can we can restore the, the confidence that I do think was lost over the past uh, five, six years. Donald Trump and two of his children have been ordered by a New York judge to appear for a deposition within the next three weeks. It's uh, part of this investigation over alleged fraud in the valuation of assets belonging to the family business. And I speak to a lot of people about these investigations. Of course, there's, you know, the Southern District of New York, uh, Letitia James, but there's also the District of Manhattan that's investigating him, as well as the um, uh, arguably the Justice Department as well. They've got a lot to look at now also off the back of the January 6th uh, insurrection committee. But is Donald Trump above the law? I mean, do people like him get caught? Do they go to prison? Do they do they serve time? Or do they just keep getting away with it? Because this is going to be a, a landmark moment for the types of people. There's plenty of other Donald Trump characters out there. So do you think that, do you think that justice will ever catch up with him? You know, I... Yesterday, when um, when they announced that that Trump would have to um, sit for a deposition and his two eldest kids, um, the New York AG Letitia James said, you know that that this was an indication that he's not above the law, and you know I I certainly think it's a good um, a good step. You know this is this is one of it feels like in recent days there have been a few things. You know he got dropped. Uh, his Trump organization got dropped by their long-term accounting firm. Um, then we had the news about the deposition. It seems like maybe one other thing that I'm forgetting, but, you well, know. He, it, he put out a statement, didn't he, that completely contradicted the statement of his accountancy yes. firm from the day before. Correct. And that, and that, and that he effectively perjured himself by, he obviously didn't know what they had said. And so he then said something completely different. He's almost saying to the Justice Department, it was me. Come and get me. Come and arrest me. Here I am. I'm the one that did it. Come and get me. And and and, and yet it's, people are complaining that Merrick Garland and the Justice Department 
It's like, well, yes, we're going to investigate this. We're going to find out who it is and what the problem is. And, and Trump's like, it's me. It's me. I told you it was me. I'm over here. And yet still, they, he seems to evade the law. And, and, and when we're talking about authoritarianism and we're talking about the rise of fascism, there's a lot more resting on this than just a few uh, idiosyncrasies with, ta- with his uh, tax filings. Is yeah. that right? Yes. And, you know, I think one of the things you're seeing with Merrick Garland and the Justice Department is sort of this weighing of, on the one hand, we have these these norms about, you know, uh, former presidents and, um, you know, executive privilege and not coming across as if you're you know going after your political opponents. But then on the other hand, you know, we do have these these values and, and principles that, you know, nobody's above the law, that if you break the law that, you know, you will face consequences regardless of who you are and how much money you have and how, you know, how powerful you are. And I think ultimately, you know, it's they're kind of trying to figure out that balance and, you know, arguably either one. Um, you know, I, I think it, we do have those norms about, um, you know, former presidents sort of being not, not above the law, but in a little bit of a different position just because of, of you know, what they, what, what types of decisions they have to make. Now, again, with Trump, that's a little bit different because a lot of the things we're talking about are not actually uh, you know, they're they're not actually related to his duties as a president. They're related to his private business that you know he had before and and during his presidency. So I do think that you know that's an important um, detail to acknowledge that the reason we generally um, see you know former presidents and current presidents get um, some exceptions made in in certain circumstances is is when it deals with their duties as president, not their uh, business as private individuals. But so. a lot of presidents previously were politicians, weren't they? So they've they've been in public service, they've been governors, or they've served in some even in the military in some cases. You know, Trump was a was a a fake billionaire and a reality TV show host. So. You know, do the rules should the rules change for this guy? Like, should we, should the should the attorney general be not looking upon him as being because he wasn't even a two term president; he was a one term president who was impeached twice. So, should the rules be different for him? Because there's a lot of people that say that Merrick Garland is just he was a, a Trump appointee. Let's not forget that he is just going to be too soft on this entire movement. I mean, it's not just one man, is it? Trump famously said the other week at a Texas rally, they're not after me, they're after you. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, on the one hand, you are correct. You know, Trump came from a very unconventional background. He was a very unconventional president. Um, on the other hand, you know, one of the um, kind of, again, I think it goes to weighing sort of where, uh, on the one hand, we can't become a country that says, you know, when you're president, that means you can't break the law and anything you do is, is, you know, legal by default because you're president. I mean, that, that obviously can't be the case. On the other hand, um, you know, given, um, given the, the partisanship of, of, um, of our country right now, I don't think now is the time either. 
to roll back some of those longstanding norms of not, you know, not going after um, sitting or former presidents for their, again, for their, their business as president. And, and again, I think that's where the distinction comes in with Trump is that a lot of the things, not all, but a lot of the things we are talking about that are being investigated have to do with him as a private individual, as a business owner. And I think that is in a, you know, a very different, um, just a, a different category of, of legality or illegality. Sure. I mean, he, he, li- he lied about uh, kind of letting go of the Trump organization, didn't he? Like famously, when he took office, he said, I'm not going to have anything to do with the business anymore. And then as time went on, it became clear that actually he hadn't let go at all. And he was still making every decision at the Trump organization. And he was still trying to, in fact, take advantage of the presidency to grow his business. And and there's all sorts of information coming out now about $375,000 that was paid from uh, the Make America Great campaign to pay for office space in Trump Tower. I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of corruption there. And Michael Cohen, I guess, his former fixer is going to be key to a lot of this. Uh, And that's, in fact, what Letitia James's office is saying, that it's really Michael Cohen's statements that have been the lead for a lot of this. And and I actually have a lot of time for Michael Cohen now. You know, I I thought of him as a baddie back then, but he seems like He's repented now and, you know, he recognizes that he was just in with the wrong crowd and now he's spilling the beans. Um, There's one statistic I want to run by you, which I'm interested in your opinion on, and that is that 70 percent, this is a poll that was done a couple of days ago, 70 percent of Republicans, Republican lawmakers, believe that the uh, election of 2020 was fraudulent and was uh, taken away from Donald Trump and that Joe Biden should not be the legitimate president. Do you think they actually believe that or are they just saying that because they're still under the under under the the power of their supreme leader? I do think a fair number of them particularly when you're talking about elected republicans and sort of you know pundits and influencers um I think a fair number of them don't necessarily believe it, but you know that that idea that the election was stolen has become somewhat of a litmus test. And if you're not willing to get behind that idea, it's very hard at the moment to be, you know, to have a role in that sort of pro-Trump Republican party. And so I think a lot of them, you know, are are politically savvy. That's how they got where they are in the first place. And I think a lot of them recognize that they have to say that and that that's, you know, if they don't say that, that they're either going to get voted out or, you know, in the case of a pundit or whatever, they lose half their audience. And, you know, I think they recognize that that's what the Republican, the pro-Trump Republican voters want to hear right now. And, And so they'll they'll say that. Um, sort of it, you know. But they're, to- but they're choosing they're choosing a falsehood or a lie. I hate the word falsehood. <laughs> we used to use that word, and now it's just like people say lies. They're choosing lies over democracy. It's almost as if the very fabric of America is the free vote, a fair and free election. There was no election fraud. It's been checked and checked and rechecked, and yet they are still prepared to put the entire fabric of the nation 
at risk just to side with Trump and just to own the libs? Well, you know, they're also prepared to make it harder for millions of people to vote, you know, to redistrict things so that it's easier for them to win and, um, you know, consolidate uh, voters in certain districts to make it basically impossible for a um, a Democratic challenger to get uh, beat them in a, um, you know, in some of the local races. And, you know, I think some of them, you know, probably don't necessarily recognize quite how harmful what they're doing is and quite how harmful it is when you, um, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, devalue truth and and treat um, information more like it is a weapon rather than a, a tool for knowledge or enlightenment. And um, but I think a fair number of them are, you know, fierce ideologues are fierce partisans. And they feel like they're, you know, if that's what it takes, that's what they're going to do. And, um, you know, that's, that's the, the, part that um, is probably the most disturbing, the most frightening is that there are people who I think are, you know, fully aware of, of how damaging it is to, um, to lie about something like an election, the legitimacy of an election, um, and who are, you know, willing to do it anyway, because that, that's what they think it will take to win. But they're effectively burning down the republic. And I've, I've often said that, Actually, Republicans shouldn't be called Republicans. They should be called, I don't know, America First or whatever Trump's new movement could be called. And actually, Democrats should be called Republicans because they're the ones who want to maintain the republic and, and maintain the democracy. And, and, and so, you know, are we at a point now where democracy is just exclusive to, to Democrats? And actually, it's something that Republicans have just let go of. The idea of a fair election is irrelevant to them now anyway. I mean, I think, you know, with with Trump becoming such a large part of the Republican Party, um, you know, I think that the the pro-Trump GOP that exists today, it does largely exist at odds with a lot of the, uh, you know, fundamental tenets of, of democracy, starting with valuing and caring about truth. And, and um, you know, I think I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's exclusive to Democrats, but right now, Democrats are the only party that is, is still working to uphold those those values that, um, you know, that, that many of us have come to know and love. And, um, you know, I think the the there are people out there who don't identify as Democrats who are still, you know, pro-democracy. There are people out there who, you know, certainly used to be Republican voters who probably aren't anymore who would identify um, as, as pro-democracy. But, you know, I think right now the Republican Party as an institution is largely working in the direction of, um, you know, eroding democracy. And, um, you know, I think that in of itself, you know, we, we, a one party system is not is not a healthy um, way to function in a in a democracy. And, and that's, you know, that in, in and of itself is a danger 
And, um, you know, I think that's something that uh, we are going to have to wrangle with sooner rather than later, because it does not seem like Trump's grip on the Republican Party is really going away. Maybe that will change with 2024. We'll see. Um, But right now, it, it certainly doesn't seem to be changing. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like we are living in the media's world. You know, the media brought us Donald Trump and the media has supported his desire to divide. And the media looks at Twitter, as you say, and takes that as read. And the reality is most people are not on Twitter. In fact, most Republicans don't watch Fox News. I think you know, they only get like three million viewers a week. You know, it's it's not it's not these kind of monolithic um Uh, institutions that we think they are. And in fact, society can exist very nicely without any of this stuff. And so, I I mean, I actually have hope, you know, I I fear, I fear 2024, because I I don't quite know how, uh, you know, legally that's going to look in terms of the the election, you might find a lot of people just like, I'm not going to vote, it's fraud. And that's how they'll start. Uh, but that's a shame because I would like Republicans to vote in as many numbers as, as Democrats because I, I believe in democracy. So, you know, I, I, I have hope that actually we'll come through this, but I recognize that the media don't seem to be learning. And you only need to look at, you know, Spotify and Joe Rogan and these types of situations to see that really the lessons have not been learned. And if Trump was to return hypothetically, that the media would again enjoy all of the profit that he brought these networks because people didn't really watch these channels before him. They were just on in the gym or they were on in a hotel, but people didn't really watch these networks religiously like when he was this freak show, this, you know, what's he going to say next? And they encouraged that. And so, you know, I think that's why a lot of independent journalists that have really tried to try and trailblaze their own path and not give credence to these fabricated stories or these opinions that suddenly become the news. Um, I think life's going to be fine. You know, I'm trying to end on a hopeful note because I I really want us to be, you know, positive. And I do have a and I just trust people. I actually think that people are fundamentally born good. And I, I feel like there is still an inherent goodness in this country. Uh, I'm very grateful to you for joining me today. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Um, uh, And uh, hopefully we'll chat with you again sometime. My thanks to Dr. Caroline Orbueno and to Sarah Firth. And don't forget to subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube and also the 5-Minute News daily audio podcast, which drops in the early hours every morning. So it's there when you wake up and you can listen to it whilst you make your morning coffee. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Anthony Davis. Join me next Sunday morning with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the 5-Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Touch. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.